0: Last week, and I'm going to give a quick overview, but I'm not going to spend too long on this. But last week we said this, that the arrival of Jesus, the arrival of Jesus signaled something entirely new. That Jesus was not trying to do Judaism 2.0 or religion 2.0, but Jesus was turning the religious structures of his day and of all time on their head. And we use this framework, we use a framework that I called the temple model of religion. And the temple model of religion, I believe we find in every religion going back to the most ancient religion possible. So if you go back to the ancient Egyptian, or the ancient Assyrians, or the ancient Babylonians, or ancient Judaism, or if you go to modern day Christianity, I believe we find strands of temple model religion. And temple model religion, I'm defining this way, that first there are, there are sacred spaces There are these spaces that we go that are holy and reverent. And coffee is absolutely not allowed, right? There are sacred spaces. And and then in these sacred spaces, we find sacred text. Or it could be something that is passed down orally. And then in these spaces where these sacred texts are held and interpreted, we find sacred men. For whatever reason, it's almost always men. And, and these sacred men control and interpret these texts. And then we have what we've said were either sincere followers, or if we were being less charitable, we might even go as far as to say superstitious followers who kind of follow what's being said. And what we said is when Jesus arrives on the scene, he turns all this upside down. And what he does is he says, a new agreement, a new covenant I give you. No longer do you need anyone to mediate God to you. And when you are in the most sacred space imaginable, the person to your front or to the, in front of you and the person to your left and to your right is more sacred, is more sacred and matters to God more than any plot of ground on any dirt that you will ever stand. And then Jesus gives us a new commandment, and we're going to look at this more, even more in depth next week. But Jesus gives us a new commandment that he says supersedes all the other commandments. And Jesus gives us a new ethic, a new way to live, and we're going to look at that a bit today. But he gives us a new way of living, and the way that Jesus gives us to live should begin to trickle down into all areas of our lives. And ultimately... Ultimately, what Jesus was about was not starting a new religion, but was starting a movement of people. A movement of people who were radically committed to the way of Jesus. Who were radically committed to living a life of love. And so that kind of takes us quickly up to to where we are today. But the problem is, the problem is, is that um, Jesus' earliest followers, all of Jesus' earliest followers um, were good religious people at one point, or had been, or at least came from a society where religion was prevalent, and for that, for them, that religion was Judaism. And so, what began to happen is, as people begin, as the message of Jesus began to settle in, it becomes unsettling to people. It becomes unsettling to good religious people, and and, and because it feels in a way to overturn the law, the thing that they had structured their life, religious. It seems sacrilegious. And, and, and so the, the thing I think we kind of need to understand, the thing we need to understand is that, is I've got to find my thing, what I want to say here, because I totally lost my, my spot in the notes. Uh, it seems sacrilegious, and it felt disrespectful to abandon everything that they've been up, brought up with. And the truth is, and this is true for all of us, that our conscience determines our religious reality. Our conscience determines our religious realities whether it reflects reality or not. Our conscience reflects religious or determines our religious reality. What is religious for us, what we experience as religion, is shaped and formed by our conscience. Our conscience is shaped and formed. Now, we have all experienced this in some way or the other. There has been a time when you have been with a friend and and you and your friend feels guilty about doing something and your friend feels guilty about doing something and you're like what's the big deal and they're like well it's wrong and you're like no it's not like I, wh- no it's not wrong and then a little bit later that exact same friend you want uh, th- th- this that same situation is reversed there's something that you think is wrong they're like dude what's the issue Give you an example to make this more real. Um, growing up, I grew up uh, in a church called the Church of the Nazarene. It comes out of the holiness movement, which is kind of this pietistic, revivalist movement. And the one thing we knew, that we were holier than lots of other people. Particularly, we were holier than Catholics. They didn't take their faith as seriously as we did. Um, and so, in college, in college, I became friend, close friends with some Catholics for the first time in my life. Um, and turns out they, they loved Jesus. But, but I still remember, I still remember there was this moment... I just met this girl. um, We were actually in D.C. for a conference. We were in Arlington. I will never forget this moment as long as I live. We were sitting in, like, the basement of this building, kind of hanging out between sessions. And I said, hey, did you see last night what happened on Friends between Ross and Rachel? I know Friends is probably kind of a dated reference now, but this show back in the day was really popular. And I said, did you see what happened on Friends with Ross and Rachel? And this look of kind of shock comes over her face. And she's like... I'll never forget this line. Don't they cohabitate in that show? And I'm like, what, what is cohabitation? I'm more holy than you. Who are you to call the show? Later on that evening, later on that evening, her and a couple of her friends come and say, hey, Kevin, we're going to go out and grab a drink and then maybe go dancing afterwards. Now, what you need to know about my people is that we don't drink, dance, or chew or go with girls who do, right? It's just not what we do. And I said, you drink? And she said, don't you? She's like, we drink in our church. I was like, you drink in church? And she's like, yeah. And I was like, that's wrong. And she's like, what do you mean that's wrong? I was like, she's like, why do you think drinking is wrong? I said, because the Bible tells me so. She's like, dude, I don't know what Bible you're reading, but Jesus turns water into wine. And I'm like, no, 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 no. It was grape juice. You need to understand what's going on in this text. Right. Our conscience conscience shapes our religious realities because our conscience has been fine-tuned to a certain set of values. Our conscience has been fine-tuned to a certain set of values over a long period of time, and that's why when, when something destabilizes that and we discover something new, we hear something new, it's often hard to shake off the past feelings that we associate with it. And no matter how many times someone says, dude, you just need to get over it. Stop feeling so guilty about that. Stop pulling along all this religious back. Drop it. It's not that easy, right? If you were in a relationship with someone, try that the next time they're really worried about something. Just say, you just need to stop worrying about that. I don't know what the big deal is about that. Try that next time and see how that goes for you. And so, and so our conscience is fine-tuned to, this, to a, f- a set of values, and so for the earliest followers of Jesus, this was a big deal. And so what they decided to do, what they decided to do was they're like, well, maybe if we just blend a bit of the Jesus model, because this is amazing. We've never heard anyone talk like him. If we bl- blend a little of the Jesus model in with Judaism, then, then we really have something special. And there's this guy named the Apostle Paul who faces this head on, um, and, and he says, that doesn't work. You cannot blend the old and the new. And so what I want to do today is I want to walk us through a, a, a passage that we've actually walked through before as a community, Galatians chapter 5. And, and the, I want you, as we're walking through, to feel the intensity and the emotion that Paul feels about this issue. Now, before we do that, you need to understand who Paul is. There's this guy named, uh, often we called him the Apostle Paul. This guy ends up writing two-thirds of the New Testament. But before he wrote two-thirds of the New Testament, he was um, the rabbi's rabbi. No one is more religious. No one is more Jewish. No one is more solid than this guy Paul. And he also has his name. He was originally named Saul. And Saul is like the biggest... uh, he, he belongs in Washington, D.C. He is type A to the T, right? So, so when there's this rumor beginning to spread throughout the, his land, when the rumors begin to spread that there's this new movement of people who follow this guy named Jesus, orders of our religion, Paul's like, hey, guys, I got this. I am going after them. And Paul or Saul at the time, what we, we forget sometimes is Paul was, was the chief persecutor of the earliest church. He if the early some say that Paul may have been one of the very first people to persecute and to kill Christians. And then this guy Saul is on the road to Damascus and he has an experience with the risen Lord that changes him forever. And what Paul understands in that moment is that you cannot blend a little of the old with a little of the new because Paul knew what the old led to more than anyone else. Paul knew that the defense of the old ended up leading even to the killing of people who disagreed with you. Paul understood the Hebrew text in the Torah better than anyone. He could quote them backwards and forwards. He is not some outsider who's just beginning to understand what's going on. And, and so what I want you to do is I want you to hear this passage from Paul. Because what happened is Paul, who when he gets saved, does not lose his type A personality. And, and so he begins to go throughout the land spreading the good news of Jesus. And he begins going from city to city as fast as he can planting these ecclesias, these gatherings of Jesus' followers. And he says, you've got to hear the good news. There's this guy named Jesus and he changed my life forever and he will change your life. And what happens is communities of Jesus' followers begin popping up all over the land. And then After Paul leaves, and we're going to look at one particular place um, in in what's now called Galatia, which is now modern-day Turkey. And in this place, Paul goes in. He preaches the message of Jesus. A Jesus gathering pops up. And then almost as soon as Paul has left town, a, a group of other evangelists, also Jesus followers, roll into town. And the term that's used for them in the scriptures is Judaizers. The Judaizers come in because they were fully Christian and they were fully good Jews. And so they roll into town. They're like, so, you, so the Apostle Paul, we heard has been here. And they're like, yeah, he preached the message of Jesus. So they're like, great, we love Jesus too. A couple things that Paul left out, particularly for you men, if you want to become, become a follower of Jesus, you need to become a good Jew. And if you're going to become a good Jew, there's just this tiny little surgery that you need to have, just a little snip, and then, and then you can become a good Jew. And so Paul, Paul, Hears the word of this comes to Paul and he loses it. This is maybe one of the most intense passages in all of Scripture. And so, what I want to do is I want to illustrate the anger and the emotion of Paul um, and why he believed that we cannot. Bibles, go turn with me to Galatians chapter 5 and we'll begin with verse 1. Galatians 5, beginning with verse 1. Also, if you don't have a Bible, um, you can read it on the screen, or there's a there's something on your iPhone called the U version um, of the Bible. I think if you just search Bible, it pops up. Like a million languages, a million versions of the Bible. You can highlight. I highly recommend it. Um, also, just a side note: uh, someone who graduated a year before me in college, or two years before me in college, actually created the U version by uh, U version. Um, he gets called back to speak at commencements, and they've forgotten who I am. But anyway, um, that's for another day. A billion downloads of the U version Bible. That's crazy. Okay, Galatians chapter one, beginning with verse five. Because here's the reason we need to hear this. Because we miss this. If we miss the message of Paul, I think we miss the message of Jesus. And we miss what was so radical and what's so life-transforming and what made the earliest church so irresistible. Galatians 5, beginning with verse 1. Paul says this, It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Paul's saying, look, you have been set free in the cross of Jesus Christ. Don't go back to the way things have been before. Because religion, religion keeps us from fully living into the mission and the possibilities that God has for us. It keeps us from embodying fully the way of Jesus. Paul continues on. Mark my words. I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you. If you let yourself be circumcised, it's a complete waste. It's a complete waste. You you just got something chopped on, and you went through all that pain for for no reason. Not only does that not help you, but you also miss out on the grace of Jesus in doing this. And the thing is, Paul is not against circumcision. It's not that there's something wrong with being circumcised. Paul was circumcised. But in this context, what it represented was the old covenant. The old way of doing things. And so Paul was saying that, look, if you try to embrace the old, trying to get to the new, you are going to miss out on both. He continues. Verse 3. Again, I declare to every man who lets himself be circumcised that he is obligated to obey the whole law. Look, if you're going that way, if you're going to go ahead and have the surgery done, just keep going. Follow it fully. Just go for it. There's 630 regulations. If you think that's the way you're going to become a Jesus follower, like, you missed it. So just go ahead and embrace the law fully. Because God has sent Jesus to do something new. You don't get to mix and match. You don't get to pick and choose. It's kind of like this. I meet people every so often who tell me that they're vegans, and then on the weekends they're eating pork you're not a vegan. You're something, but you're not a vegan, right? In the same way, like, you're not a Jesus, I mean, you are not, you are not a Jesus follower if you are trying to mix and to match. He continues, you who are trying to be justified by the law have been alienated from Christ, and you have fallen from grace. You who are trying to be justified by the law have been alienated from Christ and you have fallen from grace. See, because if you think that you are going to receive salvation, your righteousness, your goodness, your right standing with God under the law, you missed it. Right? You missed grace. It's kind of like one pastor uses this illustration that I love. He said, you know, you're a pastor and someone comes up to you and said, I just want to thank you. You have been so helpful to me in my life. You know, you you married us. You were there when we were sick. And so I just want to do something special for you. I want to um, get you a gift card to your favorite restaurant. And that's Rose's Luxury for those of you taking notes. And so, you know, we got you a gift card to Rose's Luxury you and you and charlie go out and have a nice meal and i'm like no 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 no. i cannot accept that that is hundred and fifty dollars i cannot take a hundred fifty dollar gift card from you here's what i'll do i'll give you 75 for it and they're like oh i couldn't accept that they're like but i'll take a hundred or i mean i'll take 50 right and and, in that moment is no longer a gift i just bought a discounted gift card to rose's luxury in the same way when we try to take the law or try to gain right standing with God through this bargaining of doing a little of the old and the new, we miss out. It is no longer a gift. It's no longer a gift. We're just trying to get it for a discount. And Paul's saying that grace is the hallmark of the Christian experience. It's a hallmark of the Christian experience. And the thing is that you don't do anything to earn or deserve it. It is a gift. And the moment you start bargaining with God and trying to earn your way is the moment, is the moment you have fallen from grace. And this is what's so insidious, this is what's so insidious about religion, is those of us who are extra religious, who show up here every Sunday and who do all the right things and do read our Bible when we should and give the right amount, we begin thinking that somehow we earned what we receive from God, that somehow we belong, that somehow something is owed to us, and that when we begin feeling that way, we begin treating others in a way that is not Christ-like. He says this, for Christ, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. And then Paul says something, that is so extreme that if it wasn't in the Bible, I don't know that I would preach it because I would think it's just a little too touchy-feely liberal and I don't really know if it goes along with Christianity. Paul says this. He says, The only thing that counts is faith expressing, or translated sometimes as working itself through love. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. And his followers, the earliest followers of Jesus, have to be thinking, like, have you seen how thick the scriptures are? Have you seen the list of regulations? And, and what Jesus says is that there's not 630 things you must do. There's not 10 things you must do. There's one thing. One thing. The circumcision and all that it represents goes like this. It goes like this. Those of us who try to win faith through righteousness, It's always saying, hey, God, how am I doing? Hey, God, how am I doing? Are are we doing okay, God? Like, in the tradition I grew up in, I must have gone to the altar a hundred times because I was obsessed with how I was doing with God. Was I in right relationship with God? Was God okay with me? And some of us, some of us are obsessed with how we are doing with God. And we get obsessed with the vertical. And Paul says, look, that day is over. If you have faith in Jesus and have begun walking down the path, Quit worrying. Quit worrying about what God thinks about you. I love this. One pastor says it this way. He's like, anyone who will die for you, they're for you. Anyone who will die for you is for you. So quit worrying about how we are doing with God because we obsess about our vertical relationship at the expense of our horizontal relationship. Because the only thing that has any value is how you treat the people around you, not how you treat God. God is fine. <laughs> God is fine. This is a big deal. Paul continues on. He says, You were running a good race. Who cut in on you to keep you from obeying the truth? And he says this Look, a little yeast works its way through the whole batch. Or the whole batch of dough. Look, a little, a little fungus changes the whole thing. A little bit of temple thinking, a little bit of legalism. It withholds grace and it ruins the whole thing that Jesus is doing. It only takes a small dose of the wrong thing to corrupt it all. And Paul is saying, look, Jesus is doing something new. Not a mix, not a blend or a balance. Jesus is doing something new. And then, and then I've read you this verse. It's my favorite verse in all the Bible. It really helps Paul's anger come through. He says this, as for those agitators, I wish they would go the whole way and emasculate themselves. Just cut it off, right? If that is what you need to do, right? If that is how you're right with God, why start with just a little snip? Just whack the whole thing off. Paul is pissed. You really should read the Bible, some of you. This stuff is, there's some good stuff in there. (laughs) And if this seems extreme, or this seemed extreme to people because they didn't understand what was at stake, but Paul knew that as soon as a little temple model thinking begins to emerge, it ruins the whole thing. Because he'd seen what had happened, because what ends up happening in religious systems is this, is that the religious elite the good Christians, the leaders, they end up creating a set of rules that they are able to obtain, often just barely, right? So the tradition I grew up in, there's this great book called 100 Years of Holiness, where they, where they track, uh, and the idea was in the holiness movement that you could be sanctified, and once you were sanctified, you could live without sin. You would never sin again, kind of a crazy thought. But anyway, that was what they thought, that you could never sin again. And so the problem is, and this book tracks this in The Hundred Years of Holiness, is that they begin to shrink the definition of sin as time went along to the point when the good religious folk could finally kind of slip in narrowly. And then what you end up with is you have followers who become hypocrites because everyone is pretending that they are also without sin, but the truth is that no one is without sin. And so you get self-righteous insiders, you get followers who are hypocrites, and then we end up manipulating the text. We end up manipulating the Bible to fit our view. And Jesus shows up, Jesus shows up and he says this, he's like, Guys, I've got, got a little news for you. And the religious people were all listening. And he says, You have heard it said, You shall not commit adultery. And the self-righteousness puffs up in the room and they start looking around at the people who have. Because these people, they've kept 630 laws and they are good at it. You have heard it said, Thou shalt not commit adultery. And they look around at all the scum who have failed around them. And then Jesus says, But I say, I say anyone who has lust in their heart has already committed adultery. And you just hear the self-righteousness, like just. And then Jesus says, look, he said, anyone, says anyone, I tell you that anyone who says, and again, the self-righteousness comes in the room and they're like, oh, I've never murdered anyone. But then he says this, he says, I say, if you hate your brother or sister, you're guilty of murder. Right? What Jesus does is he, he does not lower the bar. This is not like a watered-down Christianity. What Jesus does is he raises the bar and so that none of us are able to see, our, like that all of us realize that we are all in this. There are none of us who are righteous on our own. The good Christians, the ones who've always kept a certain list of rules, we are no less broken than those around us who wear their brokenness on their sleeve. Jesus raises the bar. And Paul knew, Paul knew that the end of the temple model religion is self-righteous religious elite and people who become hypocrites and texts that get manipulated by those in power. And then Paul knew this, and you know this, that ultimately people end up being mistreated in the name of Jesus in an attempt to protect what is seen as sacred. And there are some of you that are here this morning who you have been mistreated, who the reason you resist the church is because a law or a rule was put over love and your life. And Paul knew that if we cling to the old, then we will miss the main thing. And this is the main thing. Galatians 5.13, he says this, You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free. But do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather serve one another humbly in love. This is not watered down Christianity. This is not just do as you please. This is not just feeding your own desire. He says this this isn't about a game. Some of us end up, some of us try fooling ourselves and we think if we confess, we come here on Sunday and we do good things and then we can go live however we want. That's not what he's saying. Because so many of us have grown up with good religious people who we saw what they did the rest of the week. But Paul is saying that if we are worried that loving people will cause us to forget the main thing, then we have missed the main thing. We are to use freedom to serve one another in love. Love. Galatians 5.14 says it this way, for the entire law, for the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. All you have to remember is one command, not 630, not 10, but one. Paul's saying, Listen, look, we there is we've had this the whole time. This is this isn't anything new. And that's what Jesus was about. He said this. He had like he, he had one command that he said three ways: love God, love your neighbor. And love your enemy. Love God, love your neighbor, and love your enemy. And if we want to know how we're doing with God, we don't look up, but we look around. Because the way we're doing with God is the way that we love the person that we like least. Galatians 5, 6 says it this way. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. And when you get this right, you'll pray differently. And when you get this right, you will see sin in a completely different light. And we're going to talk about that more next week, and it's going to be interesting. When you get this right, your religious experience will be characterized by freedom. And when you get this right, when we get this right, we'll start treating people better. And if what we're talking about feels extreme to you, it's because you've been listening. Because it is. And if it feels too unstructured, and it really will, next week's we begin talking what this looks like lived out, it may feel a bit unstructured. That's exactly how it felt to the earliest followers of Jesus. But what if, think about this for a moment. What if, how different would our communities be, our churches be, our nation be, if Christians decided that the only thing that matters It's my faith manifest in Christ for love for people. My faith manifest in love for people. I'm not going to rate myself by my church attendance or my giving, but love. And if you were to adhere to this morning and you have had a bad experience with church, it wasn't because people followed the teachings of Jesus. Your bad church experience wasn't because someone loved Jesus. It's because of how they treated you and because they put something else above love. And that's why we can't mix and match. That's why we can't take a bit of the old and mix it with the new. Because the moment you look up to evaluate how you're doing with God, the moment you look up, you, and you take your, the moment you look up, you take your eyes off the people that matter most to God. We are God's children. And so what would it look like this week? What would it look like if in every interaction you asked yourself this question? What does love require of me? See, because the problem is, if we've, we've framed it this way. we framed good people have... Good modern folk and good religious folk have framed it this way. Well, is it consensual or is it legal? It might be. And we frame it that way. And what we do is we create these boxes, these laws, and then we try to put our, our foot up to the edge of it and try to get just as close to the line as we can. And what Jesus knows is that always leads to manipulation of the text. And instead, what if the question became, what does love require? What does love require of us? And I believe if we get that question right and if we wrestle with that and we begin to think of what that question looks like in our life instead of whether can I get by with it or is it technically okay, it can change your life and it can change the life of everyone you interact with. Let's pray. Gracious God, we just so many of us we've been we've been hurt by people who have who have elevated so many other things above love i just i just have a sense that there is pain in this room this morning that you want to heal that you want to give us freedom from there are people who have been mistreated who are ready to walk out the back door of the church and never to return again. And I pray that your spirit would settle on this place. And as we come forth and take of the bread and the wine in just a moment, that you would give us a freedom and that we would be overwhelmed with the sense that we are a beloved child of God and that we are more sacred than any religious tradition or any sacred space. man